Last Sunday morning, we launched a very brief series entitled Cultural Prodigals, and today we're coming to what is perhaps one of the best-known parables in all of Scripture, the parable of the prodigal son. And we're reading today from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 31, and you'll find it on page 1624 of the Church Bible. Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. As you come to Luke chapter 15, one of the things you immediately notice is that Jesus is teaching three parables. And the first parable is that of the lost sheep, then the lost coin, and now the lost son, beginning at verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here am I, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you have never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, father said, You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Some years ago on a birthday, I was sent a birthday card and on the front cover it said happy birthday and then had a picture of a wee boy dressed up as Superman and then on the inside it said happy birthday you walk that fine line between dorky and cool and it was such a good birthday card that I've kept it and I have it in a particular place on my bookshelves at home I have to confess I've never been accused of being cool, but there have been moments when I've really wanted to be cool. It's not often, but from time to time it happens. And I distinctly remember it happening back in 2011. And Apple had produced the first iPad. And the television advertisement was so good. At the end of the advertisement, I thought, wow. And it was so good for this reason. You saw a young man with a brand new iPad. And as he was scrolling down the page, it began with a number of words that highlighted what was going on. And the first word was medical. In other words, you could go into your medical records and read through on an iPad. And I thought, isn't this incredible? And then it clicked to another scene where you saw someone watching a sports game and it changed from medical to live. And then it changed to musical and you saw a miniature keyboard and someone writing music on this computer tablet. And then it changed again to a games console. And then it changed again again to the word memories. And you saw pictures and photographs of children and grandchildren. And then finally it changed to sociable. You could go on Facebook. You could read Time Magazine and the Wall Street Journal and get daily newspapers. And then it finished with images of ancient cities and places and the pyramids and Machu Picchu. In one word, historic. And I thought, whoa, how cool would it be to have one of them? And for the next couple of minutes, I so desperately wanted to be the cool kid who had a new iPad. Subsequently, I bought an iPad. Miss Ruth purloined it, and I never got it back. And she enjoys it every day, answering email and catching up with folks. But for that second, I had that longing to be cool. And I suspect in this story of the prodigal son, this young man longed to be cool. He longed for adventure and experience. He longed to travel. He longed to have what his father and his brother did not have. And so he came to his father, he pleaded for his inheritance, he knew his inheritance would make him cool, and so off he goes, as Luke records, to a far country, longing to have friends and fun and excitement. And the reason the prodigal son parable is so powerful, not much has changed in the last 2,000 years of young adults wanting fun 
and excitement and a new life and to have all they could not possibly have. And so as Jesus is telling this story and he begins to unpack the story, we are quite naturally drawn to the prodigal son and focus on the son. But this morning I wanted to focus and take us in a slightly different direction. And to begin with focusing on his father. And what did his father experience that first morning when his baby boy left the family home to go off on his own seeking fun and adventure and experiences that he couldn't have at home? Let me read to you a true story. Not so much from a dad, but from a mom. Describes her own experience with her prodigal son. And she said, I stood in the doorway watching my son walk slowly down the driveway and out into the street. And then with a heart that felt heavy as lead, I reluctantly turned away. I forced myself to go through the motions of fixing dinner for the rest of the family and doing the evening chores. And when I finally crawled into bed that night, I lay awake, crying and wondering, where was he? Had he eaten supper? Did he have a place to sleep? As a parent, I asked myself, could we have done things differently? Would he ever come home again? I thought back over the years, the ups and downs, the emotions, the harsh words, the frustrations, the disobedience, the dishonesty, the questions, the long nights, the sitting, the waking up, the wondering, the worrying, asking why. Why had this son chosen to rebel against everything we'd offered him? A warm, loving home, physical comfort, a good education, a godly heritage. We had so wanted him when he arrived. We prayed for him. We'd been overjoyed at his arrival. He was a fun-loving, happy child. We called him our sunshine. I have never experienced, I never expected to be awakened late at night by police at my door holding large dogs on tight leashes, calls from detention centers, unsavory friends, drugs, theft, addiction, wild behavior why their other children although not perfect had never caused us any serious problems unable to control the tears I thought about all the chances we had given our son he had run away from home at 16 we'd taken him back and back again and again only to have him abuse our trust disrupt our family life We'd done all we knew to do. And then finally today, my husband told him to leave. I wasn't prepared for a prodigal. I never imagined that one night I would lie in bed wondering where my son was. But once you love, you're never free again. After years of giving all we had to this beloved child, he chose to disregard his family, reject all he'd been taught. Many evenings I experienced stabs of guilt and searing self-doubt. Could we have brought him up differently? Were we too strict? Were we not strict enough? Had we shown him enough love? Had we truly gone the extra mile? Had we prayed hard enough? We had not been perfect parents. 
We had made mistakes, but we also knew we had done our best. At times the Lord had gently reminded me to deal with my son as he deals with us, his children. To keep the doors of communication always open. To accept the person. Remind them they are loved. Even though we could never accept his actions or his conduct. What do you do when you have prodigal children? What do you do when you leave home and you're estranged from them? How will you respond in a Christ-like manner to a major crisis in your life? I suspect the prodigal son's father had similar experiences. And as we now focus on the son, I promise we'll come back to the father But here is the father facing a major disappointment in his life. And so as the story develops, what do we discover? Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, There was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Can you imagine a young Jewish boy feeding pigs with his upbringing and his background and his his heritage? It is almost impossible to imagine him getting any lower But no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He left home full of excitement, full of hopes, full of dreams, longing for experiences, longing to be free on a great adventure but things did not work out that way and due to several lifestyle choices and poor decisions the priorities the motivations the desires that his longings needed to be met came to the fore and it ended in disaster great deal of pain and utter disappointment There are two principles that Scripture teaches again and again and again that in many ways summarize this passage. I've mentioned them to you various times in the past, but let me give them to you again. And if you're taking notes this morning, please get them down. Number one, we tend to underestimate the power, magnitude, and gravitas of our own sin. And number two, we tend to underestimate the power, magnitude, and gravitas of the love and grace of God. And this young man had reached a low point in his life. He had given in to sin and temptation 
and it had ruled his life and taken him to the darkest place possible. Now let me explain that process if I may. A couple of years ago, we looked at the temptation cycle on Sundays and Wednesdays, but again, it seems appropriate today as we analyze what took place in the mind of that young man. And when temptation comes our way, it always, always, always begins with deception. I've put this diagram at the bottom of your sermon notes so you can cut it out when you get home, slip it into your Bible and remind yourself of the power, magnitude and gravitas of sin. When it begins with with deception, it begins by telling you this, that what you're thinking of doing and what you're actually doing is no big deal We used to think that these things shouldn't be participated in, but that was decades ago. We're such a tolerant society today. Drugs are no big thing. Everyone who tries soft drugs doesn't become a drug addict. It's not a big thing. Relax. Chill out. On other occasions it will be, actually what I'm doing is, it's not a big deal. He's a friend. I know him in work. It's harmless. It's innocent flirtation. It'll go nowhere. On the other hand, the temptation may be in a different direction. Where you're tempted to think, well, it's only a drink. What difference will it make? I can control this. It won't impact me. I won't find myself addicted. That's just silliness. And that's how deception begins. When sin comes crouching at your door, it begins with deception. And deception quickly, almost at the same moment, moves to attraction. And we discover that in the midst of attraction, our affections and desires get entangled with deception and attraction. And suddenly it makes us feel cool. It makes us feel important. It makes us feel that we are large and in charge. We can control this. It's alluring. It's exciting. People are looking up to us. We're on an adventure. And from deception and attraction, it begins to move to enticement. And enticement simply gives us Moments of gratification, it confirms our thinking up to this point, and it draws us deeper and deeper and deeper into a situation which takes us further and further and further away from the things of God. Then enticement moves to preoccupation. And we discover it's the first thing we think about in the morning. It's the last thing we think about at night. And we know that, sure, it's become a little more important than we first imagined, but it's no big deal. I can still deal with it. Then you begin to fantasize about the next opportunity to indulge again in deception and attraction and enticement and preoccupation. And preoccupation quickly moves to conception and conception quickly moves 
to sin. And we underestimate again and again and again and again the power and magnitude and gravitas of sin. It is addictive and enslaving. Tell this young man when he first left home he would never have listened. But that is in fact his entire story over the days and the weeks and the months when he involved himself in wild living. Back in February, young man called Nicholas Cruz, 19 years old, student in Florida, murdered 17 of his fellow students, wounded 15 of them at Marjorie Douglas Stoneman High School. The FBI at the end of May released video clips of Nicholas speaking to his cell phone, and this is what he says. Please hear this. All the kids in school will run in fear and hide from the wrath of my power. They will know who I am. I've had enough of being told what to do and when to do it. Isn't that incredible? That he loads an AR-15, walks into a high school and takes 17 lives and wounds 15 others. And it began with self-deception. And it moved to attraction. I will be someone. I will be in charge. Then it moved to enticement when his affections and wants and desires were beginning to be met. And please hear this. This was not a spontaneous act of a madman. This was deliberate and calculated and a mind focused on evil intent. And the thing that dominated his mind was what? The intoxication of self-importance, intent upon carnage and violence. That is sin. Its power, its magnitude, and its gravitas we underestimate again and again and again. And the other point in this temptation cycle is this. That we tend to think sin is something we do rather than something that impacts us. But it impacts us when it corrupts and changes and distorts our moral and spiritual values. And it takes us to the point of deception, attraction, enticement, preoccupation, conception, and sin. That's what happens. It impacts us every bit as much as something we do. And notice how the prodigal son responded. Notice what he says. Verse 17. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, why is that important? Why can we not afford to miss this part? Because this young man did not say simply, I made a mistake. 
He doesn't simply say it was the result of poor choices, both of which would have been true, but it was much more serious than that. Much more serious than that. He doesn't say I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. He doesn't say I have to go back to school. He doesn't say I need more self-discipline. He says, I have sinned. And I have sinned. I have got it wrong. And it's ended up in disaster. And when he goes back to his father, notice what he says. Again, he says, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy, no longer worthy to be called your sin, because he recognizes the deep-rooted nature of his sin, and he recognizes Only the grace and love and goodness of God can transform the heart. That's what's going on here. Now we started not with the son, but with the father. And the passage naturally shifts focus as the son is journeying back to the father. And what does it tell us? It tells us this. That the father saw him coming. Do you imagine the father stood there at some point every day looking down that road? Wondering, praying, grieving, longing for his son to come. I suspect that's exactly what happens. And he doesn't stand there waiting, looking in the distance, thinking, okay... I am going to show him. I am going to tell him. Unless he comes and puts himself on his knees and begs for forgiveness, it's over. When he gets here, I'm going to, you've made your bed, lie in it. Get on with it. The very opposite is true. The father runs to him, holds out his arms, engulfs him. With compassion and longing and excitement and delight. Because his son who was lost is now found, was dead and is now alive. That's the picture of the gospel. That's why we are tempted to underestimate the power the magnitude and the gravitas of the love of God. There is no sin too heinous he refuses to love. There is no place too dark he cannot reach you. There is nothing we go through where he will not wrap his arms of love and grace around us and draw us close and say, I've got you, you're mine. I love you. That's what's going on here. That's the significance of the parable. And to sum up what was happening in the mind of this young man, he was no longer seeking to leave his father. But in fact, he longed for his father's presence. Number two. He no longer sought to run away from home. Now he was looking forward to being home where he was loved. 
And number three, he was no longer seeking to be free from his father's restrictions and influence. He was now seeking forgiveness. Because all of the excitement, all of the adventure, all of the new experiences ended up as nothing. Because unless Christ is at the center of them, they will count for nothing. We started with the story of the lady telling us about her own son. And uppermost in our minds is the question, why would God allow this in the first place? Why didn't he simply give the boy enough sense and restrict him from leaving home? And all of the peace, peace, excuse me, all of the pain, all of the grief, all of the sadness, the disappointment, the disillusionment, he wouldn't have to have gone through. But please hear this. Inherent in our very nature is this, that God has made us human. And to be human means we have choices and decisions lying before us. But in the midst of those choices and decisions, he promises to be there with us and for us and bring good out of disaster. Let me close with this quote. It comes from Jim Packer in his outstanding book called Knowing God. And he says this of God. He blesses those in whom he sets his love in a way that humbles them so that all the glory may be his alone. He hates the sins of his people and he uses all kinds of inward and outward pains and griefs to wean their hearts from compromise and disobedience. And he seeks the fellowship of his people. And he sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. He teaches believers to value his promised gifts by making them wait for those gifts and compelling them to pray persistently for them before he bestows them. And so we read of God dealing with his people in the scripture record, and so he deals with them still. Please remember, God never asks us to walk the fine line between dorky and cool. He never asks us to do that. But he calls us and he equips us not to be cool, but to be faithful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of the prodigal son. For those of us who are wrestling with children who are prodigal and we do not know what to do, help us to keep the doors of communication always open, to accept them as a person, remind them of their love, even when we could not accept their actions and their conduct. And Father, help us please, always, to focus again on the power, gravitas, and magnitude of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.